Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In 2003, a 19-year-old sophomore at Stanford dropped out. Her name was Elizabeth Holmes, and Miss Holmes had found a way to run blood tests, the sort of test that your doctor would send you normally to a lab to get, except Miss Holmes had discovered a way to do this with one one hundredth of the blood normally taken. So normally when you get your labs sent out, they take a vial of blood, a fair amount to do your labs. She had discovered a way, a process to do this with just a very small, just a drop or two of your blood. And so she dropped out of Stanford University. She started her own company and she raised $700 million of venture capital. $700 million to start up her company, which she called Theranos. Being a cross between the words therapy and diagnosis, she started the Theranos company. At its height in 2014, Theranos was reporting profits profits of $100 million a year. They had partnerships with GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Walgreens, and Safeway. This company was absolutely enormous. There was just one small problem. The entire thing was a lie. The entire company was built on a lie. Elizabeth Holmes had never been able to test the blood the way that she said she did. They had never been able to produce the results that they said that they could. In fact, in 2014, when they said that they had $100 million in profits, We have learned later, as this has been litigated, that they only had $100,000 in sales. (laughs) That's not profits. (laughs) That's just what they sold. They sold almost nothing. And so in 2014, the Wall Street Journal, working with a couple of research scientists, began to look into the company. And by 2018, the company was gone. Elizabeth Holmes is now bankrupt, has zero dollars to her name. At one point, was worth several billion, and now nothing. Why? Because she lied. And that's that's bad, right? It was a a bad thing for her to lie about being able to do all of these tests, for for her to, to lie about being able to provide this health care. Why? Why is that wrong? What's the difference between that and the time I got hoodwinked? 
You see, there was this thing a few years ago, it was about five or six years ago, back before chips were in your credit cards, and it was a credit card company that promised that they had a little digital credit card that had a a button on the bottom of it, and you could enter in credit card information for five different credit cards of yours, or debit cards, or even membership cards to different places, and you just selected with the selector which of the five that you wanted, and then swiped it, and it would use that card. And I was very excited because this would cut my wallet down to virtually nothing. And I was there for that. And so I backed the Kickstarter. And you know what I got from that Kickstarter? Do you know what I got from all of that? Nothing. So what's the difference between what Elizabeth Holmes did and how I got hoodwinked by the guy that's really good at making Kickstarters? We kind of look at the credit card thing and go, well, that was... You know, Justin, you shouldn't have done that. You live, you learn. But we look at the, the Elizabeth Holmes case and go, that's bad. She lied, that's bad. What, what's the difference between those two things? We would say the difference is the, the fact that it hurt other people. But the question to me is, what do we do about lying? Because as a culture, we have sort of accepted lying as just the way that it is. That, that everybody lies, and so it's kind of an even playing field. The only time lying is really bad is maybe, maybe if, maybe if you, you know, get caught and it's really bad, maybe if you hurt people. But by and large, we as a, we as a society believe if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. If you have followed baseball, you might know that the Astros got caught stealing. And most of the defense of the players and the fans of the Astros has been, well, everybody's doing it, we just got caught. It's not cheating is bad, it's not lying about stealing signs is bad, it's we got caught, oops. But everybody else is doing it. As long as you don't get caught, as long as you don't hurt somebody, lying is pretty much okay. Which makes sense, because we as a society have a difficult time with even the question of truth. No matter what side of the news spectrum you are on, we would mostly agree that many of us look around the world around us and we have trouble with truth. So it's no question we have a problem with lying. By and large, we see this as a minor problem. By and large, we see this as not that big of a deal. And so then you come to Proverbs chapter 6. You come to this list where God is listing out the things that he truly hates. The things that he really, really hates. And we would expect this list to be filled with the really bad sins, right? And yet, twice, twice in the list of seven things that God hates, twice, he mentions lying. Why? Why is God so concerned about lying? Why does it bother him so bad? Why doesn't he list murder twice? Why doesn't he list some kind of sexual sin twice? Why doesn't he list something? No, he, the thing that he lists twice 
is lying. So, so why is that? What's going on underneath lying that makes it so significant that God would mention it twice? And I think, I think what the writer of Proverbs knew, I think what God is trying to tell us is that lying is actually a symptom of something much, much worse. And that's this. That our lack of truth-telling is rooted in unbelief. What's really going on underneath of our lies is unbelief. If we believed what God said about us, if we believe what God said was true about us, then we wouldn't feel compelled to lie. But because we don't believe that, even those of us who are Christians, we struggle to believe what God says about us, and so we lie to make up the difference. I want to read to you a story that bears this out. So what we're going to do is, in just a second, we're going to all stand up. I'm going to read a little bit of Proverbs 6 that we've been going through this Lent season. Uh, And then I'm going to read Genesis chapter 20, and we're going to see how this story works out. So if you would, please stand with me as I read. First Proverbs, and then Genesis 20. Proverbs says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. And now we come to Genesis From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he him not self, uh, himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and he called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were much afraid. Then Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. and, And they will kill me because of my wife. Behold, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then when God caused me to wander from my father's house, 
I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me at every place which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases. And to Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If this is your first time hearing this story, it probably comes as a shocker. It's not exactly what you expect the story of one of the heroes of both Judaism and Christianity, Abraham and Islam for that matter, to be portrayed as. We think of Abraham as a father of the faith and he is, and yet this story does not exactly present him in the best light. And the weirder thing is, if you have uh, been reading your Bible through from the beginning, if that is the plan that you have been on this year, you will know that when we come to Genesis 20, this is not the first time Abraham has run this hustle. This is the second time Abraham has run this hustle that is recorded in the Bible. And Abraham admits later on in the passage that there may have been other times that he played this game. And so we come to this story where Abraham shows up in Gerar and says, ah, yes, this is my sister, not my wife. And so the king says, well, she is mighty good looking. And he takes her to be a part of his harem. This is from, from the way the Bible goes, let's be honest, this is an odd story, right? Father Abraham lies, we'll get to his motives later, we don't know them quite yet, but he lies and allows his wife to be taken into the harem of the king Abimelech. Way to go, Abraham. Way to set an example for God's people, right? Certainly, something else must be going on here. Because as we read this story, Abraham does not come out looking squeaky clean. But as we just look at it from the top, what I want to focus on is this. Two questions about lying as we reflect on the story first. The first question is this. Why is lying wrong? I mean, Abraham was protecting himself after all. Why is it wrong? If you're here this morning and and you're here asking questions about Christianity and you're coming from a background that is perhaps agnostic or or maybe you're an atheist, what I want to do is just ask this question. On what basis... Can we say that lying is wrong apart from God? If we have a 
purely materialistic worldview that this world and the way that things are is the only way that it is. If, if this world and the things that we see and experience with our eyes and, and can measure with science is the only things that there are, then isn't, isn't lying a form of natural selection. Those of us who lie the best, who lie the most effectively should be the ones who are able to continue on, continue the species. You see, the difficulty with a, a worldview which does not allow for something besides the material world is that there's no way to say that lying is wrong other than that you should be cool. But as we begin, as we begin to reflect on the story, I have another question. This one's targeted more towards those of us who are Christians. Imagine for a second, never lying again. Just, just stop, close your eyes if you want to, and think about what it would be like to never tell a half-truth, never lie, and never hedge the truth ever again to anyone at any time. What feeling does that evoke in you? Because the feeling that that evokes in me, if I'm being honest, is a sense of dread and terror. Why? Why are we deathly afraid of telling the truth? Why do we seem to have an almost physical reaction to the idea of never hedging, never telling half-truths, never lying again? I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. And let me tell you why I have that reaction. Because if I never lied, you would actually get to know the real me. And I'm pretty sure if you knew the real me, you wouldn't want to be my friend. And I'm very sure if you knew the real me, you wouldn't want to let me be your pastor. I am deathly afraid of what you will think of me. And so what do I do? I tell most of the truth. I skate by. I know how to be quiet. I know how to change the subject. Why? Because I don't want you to know the real me. Because I'm deathly afraid that you won't love me. That you won't like me. Um, let me reframe that. Because I think the same thing is true of you that's true of me. I, th- I think that most of you are terrified to stop lying because you're scared of what your spouse will think of you. You're scared of what your significant other will think of you. You're scared if you said those things out loud that you would not be loved any longer. That your kids wouldn't love you. That your parents wouldn't love you. And all of those things All of those reasons sunk down deep into our hearts are fundamentally rooted in unbelief. Because if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, what does God say about you? You are chosen. You are beloved. You have been shown mercy and you will be shown grace. 
I fully know you and fully accept you. But most of us go, yeah, but I don't want to test that. I know that God says that about me, but I don't want to test that. I want to make sure that I'm secure. I want to make sure that I'm comfortable. I want to make sure that I've got it together. And so what do we do to protect our comfort, our security, our power, our control? What do we do to keep all of those things in our hands? The same thing Abraham did to do the same. We lie. We lie. We hedge and we tell half truths. That's what Abraham did. And then, what? here's what blows my mind. Abraham is confronted with his line in this text, right? God comes to Abimelech, says, you're a dead man, and kind of goes on trial. God tries Abimelech and finds him innocent. And then Abimelech wakes up and he calls Abraham in and says, why did you lie to me? Now, now th- thinking about the irony and juxtaposition of what's going on here. A pagan king is lecturing God's chosen one, Abraham, about lying. The pagan king who God spoke to is lecturing Abraham about lying. And what does Abraham do? Does Abraham look full-faced in the fact that he's being lectured by a pagan king about lying and go, oof, you're right. No. Abraham goes, well, you know, here's the thing is y'all are like super pagan and I've seen y'all do a lot of bad stuff. And so I just lied because of all the bad stuff you guys did. And not only that, I didn't really lie because after all, she's kind of like my half sister sort of. So it wasn't even like I really lied. Abraham is caught red handed hand in the cookie jar. And he says, and he hedges. He continues to hedge. He continues to try to justify himself. Bad Abraham. I'm glad that none of us are like Abraham. I'm glad that none of us Christians justify our line by the actions of others. I'm glad that no one in this church has ever said something like, yes, but if I tell the truth, do you know how much money I'll lose? Oh, wait. Wait, we are like Abraham, aren't we? Let me read a couple things that some of us do to self-justify our line. Perhaps you have said, yes, I lied, but it was for the other person's good. I was doing them a kindness by lying to them. Yes, I lied, but they lied to me first, so it doesn't count. Yes, they lied, But do you know how much money I stand to lose? And after all, I give generously to the church. So if I lose this money, ah, well, I will. I will not be able to give to the church. Ah, yes, I I lied, but... You see, we as Christians struggle with justifying our line. And at the end of the day... Our telling half-truths, our line, our hedging on the truth is a failure of nerve. We look at the situation in front of us. 
And whether consciously or unconsciously, we then look at what God says. And we don't have the nerve to believe what God says. So we lie. So I lie. So I try to justify it. Lying is always functional atheism. Lying is always us failing to believe what God says is true. Think about this even in this text. So Abraham runs this scheme, runs this con with the king of Egypt years before. But now in chapter 20, this is happening a very short time after God has appeared to Abraham and said, within the next year, Isaac will be born. He has gone to Abraham and said, the child of promise is coming this year. And not only that, at this point, Sarah is pushing 90 years old and Abraham is still scared to death that he's going to get killed. She is an old woman, old enough that she laughs when God tells her she's going to get pregnant. And, and weeks at most, maybe months after this, Abraham is again lying. He is not believing what God says. And so his lies are manifesting his unbelief. So that if you and I really believed what God said, we would not be compelled to lie. Now, contrast that with Abimelech, right? I mean, this story is certainly a contrast between these two guys. Abraham, the chosen son, Abimelech, the pagan king. What does Abimelech, the pagan king, do when when it would help him to lie? It would certainly help him save face if he just said, yeah, I don't like her anymore, get out of here. But what does he do? He wakes up and he calls the whole kingdom together and, and, and says, I've been tricked. I've been lied to and it looks bad on me. He is absolutely blatant at every corner with the truth. The pagan king is telling the truth. The chosen son of God continues to hedge his bets. He openly tells others the truth about his dream, about what Abraham had said to him to his own embarrassment and detriment. How many of us are willing to tell the truth to our own embarrassment and detriment? You don't have to answer that question out loud. I think we all know our own answer to that, don't we? But here's what's amazing. When Abimelech tells the truth to his own detriment and his own embarrassment, is he destroyed by it? When Abimelech tells the truth, does it unravel his life around him? No. What's fascinating is Abimelech telling the truth is the very thing that leads to his being healed. The chapter began with Abimelech being on trial. And God sees Abimelech's truthfulness in this situation. But, but do you see the irony here 
who is the person on trial in this chapter? Who is the person that God says, comes to and says, you're a dead man too? Abimelech, the truth telling, never touched Sarah, open and honest with everybody about what he's done. Who is the person in this chapter who ought to be on trial? Abraham. Abraham, the one who rolls into town running a con, who is running a hustle, and not only that, but convincing his wife to tell the same lie. Did you catch that? Abimelech says, not only did Abraham lie to me, but Sarah lied to me. And then Abraham later admits, yeah, she lied to you because I told her to lie to you because this is a hustle we've been running for years. (laughs) Given the question of Abimelech, the pagan king, or Abraham, the child of God, which of these should be on trial in this passage? Whichever hand I raised and said Abraham with, I think it was this one. He's the one in this passage who is lying. He's the one in this passage who is sinning. He's the one who fears man. I was afraid of you people because I saw that there was no fear of God here. What's the irony? When God shows up to Abimelech in the dream, what does Abimelech and all of his household do? They snap to attention and go, oh no, what have we done? Why? Because they fear God. Abraham admits that he is fearing men. That He admits that he is hedging the truth. And then, and then the end of this chapter, the way this chapter concludes, is that Abimelech, the truth teller, has to ask Abraham, the lying prophet, to pray for him. The guy that should be on trial, the guy that very clearly at almost every turn in this story is a liar, has to pray for the pagan king who hasn't lied so that he might be healed. Why does it seem like as we read this text... As we read this text, why does it seem like Abraham is being blessed? Because not only does Abimelech send him on his way and say, hey, you can graze your cattle wherever you want in all of my land, but he also gives him more cattle and gives him something roughly equivalent to about $12 million to go away. Why does it seem like at every turn, Abraham is being blessed in spite of his faithlessness. Why is Abraham getting blessing even though he's sinning? Because the good news of this text, church, is that God's love for us is not dependent on our performance. Let that sink in because I think a passage like this makes that all the more serious. God's love for us. God's covenant faithfulness to us is not dependent on our performance. We want to make it. We want to feel righteous when we tell the truth. But his love for us is not based on our faithfulness. His love for us is not based on our performance. His love for us is not based on our moral righteousness. 
The love that God has for us is based on the faithfulness of Jesus. It's based on what he did on our behalf, not what we have done for him. You see, Abraham and all of his faults, Abraham with all of the problems that we see in this text, reminds us that we need a mediator, somebody between us and God. But we need somebody better than Abraham. Our women in their Bible studies have have gone through the book of Hebrews, which keeps continually saying, Jesus is better. And when we look at the story of Abraham, what we see is that we need a better mediator than Abraham. We don't need a flawed, lying mediator like Abraham. We need a mediator who is himself the truth which is exactly what Jesus said. And we don't need a mediator who just prays for us. Rather, the beauty of what Jesus has done for us is that he knows us. All of the things that we lie to hide, all of the things that we hedge and tell half-truths to others so that people won't know about us, all of the things that we pray to God that no one else will find out about us, God already knows. And he looks those things, all of your deepest, darkest secrets, square in the eyes, and then looks at you and says, I love you still. That is a better mediator we have in Jesus. That love is based on his righteous life. That love is based on his righteous death on our behalf. So the love that we have in Jesus, it is steadfast and immovable love. It is an unbreakable, unchanging love. Love that knows all about what we have done in secret. Love that knows why we want to hide. Love that loves us still. That's the kind of love that we have been shown in Christ. And so what happens as we begin to see that sort of love as the defining characteristic of our lives. That love as the thing that changes us more and more, what happens is we become free to tell the truth because I'm no longer bound by your opinions of me because Jesus has already said he loves me and Jesus' opinion is the one that matters, not yours. And so what happens is as we begin to trust more and more in what Jesus has already done for us, we become freer and freer to tell the truth. So City Church, let us be a community of people who trust in what Jesus says about us and who are free to be a new tribe of truth tellers here in downtown St. Petersburg. Let's pray.